Welcome back to the program. In talking to someone on the far left yesterday about my guest, former Senator George Mitchell, they went into a bit of a tirade of criticism of him, saying that he was just one of those Democrats that they trot out to make things go away or to sweep things under the rug. My friend went on to say it proves that it's all just one big party. Well, the other side of the same coin is that Senator George Mitchell, through his skill as a negotiator and a listener, can find ways for people of opposing views to get along. That rather than the polarization of today or a political world where everyone is an outlier, there are still ways to find common ground. That often when no one is entirely happy, that's exactly when we know that the best compromise solution has been reached. Yes, compromise, something that's become a dirty word today, but used to represent the highest and best accomplishments of a skilled negotiator. Amidst the clanging of a political system that sounds more like a boiler factory, Senator Mitchell has written a memoir that reminds us both of a time gone by and a vision of what still might be. Senator George Mitchell served as Democratic Senator from Maine from 1980 to 1995 and a Senate Majority Leader from 89 to 95. He was the primary architect of the Good Friday Agreements for Peace in Northern Ireland, chairman of the Walt Disney Company, U.S. Special Envoy for Middle East Peace, and the author of the Mitchell Report on the Use of Performance-Enhancing Drugs in Baseball. In 1999, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and it is my honor and pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his new memoir, The Negotiator, Reflections on an American Life. Senator George Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a delight to have you here. In many ways, as one reads about so much of the work that you've done, both in the Senate and and after the Senate, one is reminded that in our political climate today, that compromise has become a dirty word. Talk a little about that. It has. Uh, Just a couple of years ago, I recall watching on television a, a television commentary, and it put up on the screen a Tea Party member of the House of Representatives denouncing compromise. Uh, it's it's what caused all the problems and uh, we can't compromise. One of the commentators said uh, that's really not possible. A country of 300 million people, diverse views, regional clashes, uh, uh, you can't govern and never ever compromise. And uh, he said, I'll bet nine out of 10 people disagree with him. And the other commentator said, yes, but he's talking to the one the one out of 10 who participates in the nominating process. One of the factors that's a huge contributor to the polarization in our politics is the increasing partisanship in redistricting, which shapes congressional districts in an odd structure in a way that ensures one party control. Right now, you know in advance who which party's going to win about four-fifths of the seats in the House of Representatives in the election of 2016. You may not know the individual candidates because that depends on the nominating process. So the pivotal moment in American politics, at least with respect to the House of Representatives, is the nominating process, not the general election. And that, since so few people participate in nominations, it gives hugely disproportionate weight to the most active, most extreme, most rigid and ideological constituents, and therefore shapes the politics of the members of Congress once they get to the House of Representatives. That's a huge factor. And you combine it with money, a huge sums of money pouring into the American political process. Now, uh, not only unlimited 
virtually, but now unknown. I mean, the mechanism has been devised by both parties to conceal the identity, particularly of very large donors. So I think those two combine with no doubt other factors. I'm not a political scientist, but they all come together to produce a polarized politics that can't compromise because of these commitments and obligations that are made, which is to the detriment of the country. There's also the sense of it being much more of a zero-sum game. I can't help but think that that after the election in 2012, when the minority leader in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, said that our goal for the next four years is to defeat the president, to make sure that he isn't reelected. It wasn't to accomplish anything in terms of specific legislation or anything positive for the country. It really became just about the ends of the election. That's right. The, the purpose of the legislative process now is to figure out a way to defeat opponents, offer uh, embarrassing amendments, uh, prevent any action from occurring, and then criticize the administration for not getting anything done. Uh, these are standard tactics now in the American political process. Again, it is the national interest that's the loser. Is it any wonder then, and this sort of relates to so much of what you've done internationally, is it any wonder that this same attitude has permeated policy now as we look out on the world, that we are approaching the world in the same ways that we're approaching partisan politics here? And that has a a terribly detrimental effect. The foreign leaders follow American politics. They know what's going on. And so they know there is a ready and willing echo chamber in our society of any criticism they may want to make of the president. The reality, of course, is that every country pursues policies that are in its national interest. The United States is in a unique position because we are overwhelmingly the dominant and economic military power. And every other country wants us to shape our policies in a manner consistent with theirs. When I travel to the Middle East and Europe and Asia in my tours of duty, uh, two tours of duty representing the U.S. and the Middle East, uh, that was the case. Countries want us to do what's in their interest. We have to see it through the prism of our interest. And unfortunately, it's picked up here at home. A foreign leader criticizes the president. The opposition here says, well, look, see how weak he is. Now, of course, they would never countenance the president doing what that other country would like to do. But just the fact that the criticism uh, gives them a basis for making attacks on the president here. It's a very unfortunate and vicious circle. We have friends, we have allies around the world. We have people who want us to shape our policies to, to their goals and want us to fight their wars, that's going on, and it's going to increase. That's the key point I'd like to leave here. It's going to get worse. What we now regard as a turbulent period of upheaval in the Middle East is going to become the norm for several decades. Is there something 
just in the, the tenor of the times, because we see it in the cycle you're talking about, that really is about polarization and extremism, whether it's in our politics at home, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in some of the things that we see going on in Europe right now. It seems to be a time in which extremism and polarization and lack of compromise seems to be the meme, not just at home, but everywhere. It has always been the case that human beings uh, resist change because they fear change. And uncertainty, difficult economic times, creates a much greater opening for those who would use the tactics of fear and division to gain and maintain political power. That's as old as human civilization. I, I, when I travel around the country speaking, I have a quote that I read about the loss of traditional values and I ask people if they can guess who said it and it turns out it was spoken by a Greek oligarch in the year 550 BC, 500 years before the birth of Christ. This was an issue as Greece went through a transition from dictatorship to a rudimentary form of democracy. And that's the case now in the world. You're seeing very turbulent times, dramatic population growth in the most unstable parts of the world, poor governance uh, marked by widespread corruption and inability to deliver the basic needs of people, lack of opportunity, lack of hope, uncertainty, and that makes people much more susceptible these appeals to radicalism, to extremism, to violence, and all of the other things that make it difficult to maintain a stable, civilized, and prosperous society. That's going to be with us for some time to come. And of course, it's accentuated by the overwhelming presence and ubiquitous uh, uh, appearance of electronic media, the radio we're on, television, other means of communication, instantly around the world we know what's happening let me just make a point here most people think that the world is more dangerous than it's ever been the fact is it is far less dangerous than the 20th century was in the first and second world wars alone never mind the other conflicts in that century 78 million people died in a world in which the population was between a third and a half of what it is today but because we have instant communications and we know right now what happened in the most distant parts of the world, the sense is that it's much more dangerous. There's not going to be another major world war because the United States is so dominant militarily that there is no conceivable country or combination of countries that will challenge us in the kind of nation-state war that featured battleships and tanks and massed armies. But we are going to see upheaval of the types that are now occurring local, very, very bitter and savage contests like in Iraq and Syria, in some parts of North Africa, continuing for decades to come. It's interesting because when you talk about it in the context of the media, there is this sense that perception becomes reality, that we it may not be as dangerous as it was in the 20th century, mm-hmm. but the fact that we perceive it to be, or that a lot of people perceive it to be, has its own internal consequences. Well, perception certainly alters reality. Whether it becomes reality in and of itself, that's the case, but it's very clear. People act differently when there's a television camera around. When I travel in the Middle East, I often tell them that the when I went to Northern Ireland, 
the impression I had was formed by watching American television, and that was there was a bomb on every block. There were assassinations every minute, and that's what I saw on television. Well, of course, they existed, but they were a part of a much larger fabric of society, most of which was normal, decent, and aspiring to the same things that people want here. In the Middle East, I'd say that what Americans see is uh, a bunch of people uh, burning an American flag and setting tires on fire. And I said, I believe that someone from the American embassy came by at one of these television-inspired events uh, and said to the guys burning the flag, I've got some if anybody wants to go to the U.S., why they'd all drop the gas tanks, they'd drop the burning tires, they'd drop the burning flags, and they'd rush to pack up to come to America. So I don't think we should take at face value some of the televised images we have around the world to America. The United States maintains a huge reservoir of goodwill. In fact, there's a yearning for strong, effective American leadership around the world because people believe in our principles. We, we are a nation of immigrants. People have come from every part of the world, and today millions of people would like to come. They are attracted by freedom and opportunity. The American idea is what they seek, and that's what we have to keep in mind, maintaining our principles here at home and abroad. How do we begin to redefine those ideas and those principles in a way that begins to take us out of that extreme partisanship and, and extreme polarization that we were talking about earlier. Is there a way through it? I think that would be very difficult uh, because of the grip uh, that exists now uh, of big money and intense partisanship. Uh, in our process, I, I, I think, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, the possibility that in which partisanship is eliminated, or if that's not possible, at least dramatically reduced. So you get congressional districts that are not based upon the desire of one party to solidify its control, but rather help have representative democracy throughout the country. And secondly, some way to restrain the overwhelming influence of money in the American political system, which, as I said, has severed bond. Just last night, I spoke to an audience. In fact, I've spoken every night for the past week. And I asked there and really everywhere in the country, I asked all audiences this question. Does anyone here believe that the American people feel that their elected officials are more responsive to their constituents than they are to their donors? Hundreds of times I've asked that questions of what in the aggregate must be tens of thousands of people. And all that time, only one person has ever raised their hand, a woman in Washington, D.C., about nine months ago. And after the event, I approached her and I said, look, I have to ask you, you're the only person who's ever raised her hand all across America. Can you please tell me why? And she said, it's very simple. My husband is a member of Congress. <laughs> the only person who's ever answered that. So the bond of trust between the American people and their elected representatives, so essential to democracy, has been severed. I think if we can, if we can somehow come up with nonpartisan redistricting and some constraints on money, at least full transparency, 
I think there may be a way out of this. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about your youth. You spend a lot of time in the book, in The Negotiator, talking about growing up in, in, in a pretty hard scrabble poor background and and the opportunities that you had and the way that you were able to rise up. As you look around the country now and we hear so much about an opportunity gap and the the divide between the haves and the have-nots, do you see a society that affords today the kind of opportunities that you had, that you experienced growing up to really rise above and to become part of, of the middle class in this country? That type of opportunity is declining, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book. The other reason was I wanted to recognize and pay tribute to my parents, who are responsible for what I am and what I have done. The fact is that a young boy growing up in a small town in Maine today doesn't have the same chance I had because the circumstances are so radically different. In the first place, we are seeing in our country the collapse of the middle class. It has been an amazing forward surge in technology, in prosperity, in our country and in other parts of the world. But what it has meant is a change in the composition, the type of work performed by people in our every society. When I was a kid growing up in the town of Waterville, Maine, there were two textile mills, a paper mill, and a large railroad repair shop, which in the aggregate employed thousands and thousands of men and women at what I call middle-income working-class jobs. They don't exist. Not one of those facilities exists in my hometown, and we haven't replaced them. And as a consequence, the middle class is collapsing while the numbers at the bottom level are growing and the wealth at the top level is growing, both dramatically, I might say. We, we can't retard the advance of technology. That would be foolish and impossible in any event. But what we have to do is a better job at figuring out how to make work available, how to create the skills and talent and knowledge needed in the new generations to meet the jobs, fill the jobs, of the 21st century and beyond. That's the biggest challenge we face because our, our influence overseas, our military might, our economic dominance, our cultural domination, all are based upon a strong economy at home. If we don't have a strong economy at home, none of the rest of it is possible. And so I, one of the reasons I started a large scholarship program in Maine because I know there are thousands of kids in my home state and millions across the country who are like me at the age of 16, insecure, uncertain, no course in life obvious to me, not much hope. And I got a lot of helping hands and I worked hard and I was able to get an education that my parents didn't have and become the majority of the U.S. Senate. And there are kids like that all over the country today who are going to be denied that opportunity. So I think we have to focus on translating the aspiration of America, which is opportunity for all, into the reality. Senator George Mitchell, his book is The Negotiator, Reflections on an American Life. Senator, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff, very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 